Hello, my name is David Ades. I'm a poet in Sydney, Australia. And for the last couple of years, I've been running a poetry reading series um, in association with Westwards in Parramatta called Poets Corner. And we're transitioning to a digital version of that now. And uh, hopefully um, lots of people who wouldn't otherwise have been able to attend live events can, can see it. Just by way of background, Westwards is Western Sydney's literature development organisation. Poets Corner is part of Westwards public programming that celebrates the richness, diversity and insight literature offers. Especially in these times, we thank the ongoing support of Create New South Wales, the Cultural Fund of Copyright Australia, City of Parramatta Council, Blacktown City Council and Campbelltown City Council, as well as the many project partners that have enabled us to continue to provide opportunities to writers and audiences. Uh, we hope that this new world will see us sharing and a closeness of spirit. A little bit of background um, about Poets Corner. The idea for Poets Corner goes back to an experience I had in 2007 in Adelaide, where I was invited to read at a Poets Corner uh, reading that was being run by the Effective Learning Centre in Adelaide, and it's still going. So I'd like to just do a shout out to the Effective Learning Centre and my friends there. Thank you so much for the inspiration. It was one of the best readings I've ever done, and I wanted to give poets uh, in Sydney an opportunity to do something similar. And uh, that means having more than just five minutes, uh, as you often have in an open mic or 10 minute guest reading spot, but actually a longer time to engage with audiences and to do something a bit more to explore a theme of the poet's choice. And uh, these readings have been going on for a couple of years and they've been fun and they've been a lot of um, very fascinating topics. And I think audiences in the live events have really enjoyed it. So hopefully you will too. I'm recording this from my home in Beecroft, Sydney. Our guest poet today, Anne Casey, whom I will introduce in a moment, is recording from her home in Willoughby, Sydney. Uh, before we begin, I would like to pay my respects to and acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging of the Wellamita people, the traditional custodians of the land in Beecroft, and also of the Camaragal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land in Willoughby, and to acknowledge also that their land has never been ceded or given up. I'll just give a short introduction to Anne and then we'll get on to the, the poetry side of things. Originally from the west of Ireland and living in Sydney, Anne Casey is an award-winning poet and author of two critically acclaimed poetry collections, Where the Lost Things Go and Out of Emptied Cups, both published by Salmon Poetry in 2017 and 2019 respectively. She has worked for 30 years as a journalist, magazine editor, media communications director and legal author. Anne's writing and poetry rank in leading national daily newspaper, The Irish Times, most read and feature internationally in newspapers, magazines, journals, anthologies, broadcasts, podcasts, music albums, stage shows and art exhibitions, including the Irish Poetry Reading Archive, James Joyce Library, University College Dublin, The Irish Times, The Canberra Times, 
liquidity entropy at the Murmur House, Farzak State University of New York, Dash, California State University, 4X4, Faulty Northern Ireland, Cordite, Verity La, and Plumwood Mountain Review, among many others. Anne's Poetry has won or been shortlisted for awards in Ireland, Northern Ireland, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Hong Kong, and Australia. Senior Poetry Editor of Other Terrain Journal and Backstory Journal, Swinburne University, Melbourne, from 2017 to 2020, and serves on numerous literary advisory boards. She holds a law degree from University College Dublin and qualifications in media communications. Wow. <laughs> Okay, so there's a bit about Anne there. Hi Anne, welcome to Poets Corner. Hi David, thank you so much to you and Westwards for having me. Oh, very happy to have you. And now you've <laughs> selected some poems to read on the theme of yeah. sex, death and eco-politics. Uh, I have. <laughs> you're not gravitating, gravitating towards small themes, are you? I uh, know, sure, why not? <laughs> if you're going to write, you may as well write thick, huh? <laughs> Um, I do want to ask you a couple of questions without notice. Um, Ooh, okay. All my questions are without notice today um, before <laughs> we get started on the poetry. Um, and they come uh, from just from your bio notes. So the first one is, um, to what extent has your journalism and your poetry informed each other? Uh, yeah. And the themes that you're talking about, have you been exploring them in both uh, genres for a long time yeah um great question thank you um the journalism absolutely absolutely informs my poetry um does my poetry inform my journalism i'm not so sure about that you know across that but i've been a journalist for over 30 years and um, I've covered topics like the environment and um, human rights and, and women's rights. And I think those are themes that come out very strongly in my poetry. Um, and there's probably a reason for that. You know, I come from a very political country. Um, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s in Ireland um, at a time of significant political upheaval. There was still a lot of political violence. Um, and it was a very political place. And as a result, I think, you know, that's in my blood. And, you know, even harking back to olden days in Ireland, um, poetry was, was part of the political structure of the country. And, and the poets were um, revered as, um, you know, high figures in, high in society. They were influencers. Um, they were sent out to negotiate peace treaties. Um, and so I think the connection between poetry and politics has has been there for eons in Ireland and and so and and a lot of Irish poets are political as well um, I won't name names but um, you know there's some very obvious ones um, so I think it was pretty you know a very natural thing for for poetry to, for politics and 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 the sorts of topics that were coming up in my journalism to, to seep into my poetry as well. But there are other themes too, of course, in the poetry. Um, you know, love, life, family, mm. loss uh, are very strong. Um, and and eco-poetry as well. And I, and I was an environment journalist. So you will find that some of my eco-poems do have those pieces of 
data and you know little pithy facts thrown in there but i think that that's a way of not just informing people of the really some of the very dire things that are going on in the environment but it also it it creates one sharp focus sometimes in a poem and then you know you can have all of the rest the other parts too so does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, and the second question I had um, is that, you know, your two books have come out in the last three years. And as far as I can see, and I can't see very far, but as far as I can see, uh, nearly all of your published work has come out in the last four or five years. And I'm just trying to work out whether this is work that you've been writing over 30 years and storing away for a later date, or whether it's just come out in this massive outpouring um, yeah. Because you, you've you've come from your books as a fully formed poet. There doesn't seem to have been an apprenticeship there. I can't quite <laughs> fathom that. That's very kind of you to say. Um, so I've been writing um, journalism and legal books for 30 years. I've been writing poetry since I was eight years old. But I have not... Oh, sorry, I've got a message come up on my screen. Um, I've not... Um, had poetry published um, other than in my teenage years. My first poem published as an adult was in 2016, and that was in the Irish Times. Um, I, for many years, poetry was something that happened on the back of beer mats, you know, after I'd, <laughs> one of them, a friend who lives here, actually, she's a journalist as well. She, she likes to remind me after I interviewed a I won't name him, senior political figure who was finance minister in Ireland um, when I was interviewing him and ended up being prime minister. I wrote a poem about him on the back of a beer mat in the pub afterwards. So that was sort of how, how poetry occurred. It was in on scraps of, you know, napkins and spare bits of paper and they just dissolved into the detritus of life and many house moves and um, moving countries and all of that. So those were never things I preserved. Um, and it was only after my mum died in 2007. Um, very, you know, I suppose it was a very traumatic time for our family. Um, she was very seriously ill for six months. And I went home with two very young kids to look after her. Um, and I think that time and, and losing her so really unexpectedly, um, it was something I had to process and it came out in poetry, but it didn't come out for a few years. It was 2015 was when I really returned to poetry. Mm. Um, and it, as you say, it just, it came out in a deluge. It really did. Um, the first poem was published in the Irish Times in 2016. It was a poem to my mum, the Draper. Um, and there was a huge response to it, like a viral response around the world. I, I suddenly started getting, you know, people tracking me down on social media and on my website and sending me messages about just how much they had connected with the poem, with the, the, the immigrant guilt, with the, with the loss of the mother at a distance, you know, um, so many sort of little things connected. And, and suddenly I found myself wanting to conserve all of those things that I was losing from my childhood, you know, my mother, and pro I just started processing all of that through poetry. 
Um, and that's where, where the lost things came from. That was my place to put all of those things that, you know, uh, were slipping through my fingers. Yeah. Okay. That's a bit of a hero poem. So, oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, I, I actually, I have a poem from Where the Lost Things Go later, which does actually talk about my mum. But um, I thought I would start um, with this poem um, from my second collection, Out of Empty Cups. Um, um, so this poem um, won the Alice Sinclair Memorial Prize in 2018. And it's basically a series of vignettes. Um, and, and they're from my own life, but they speak to how the light and dark both shape us. If I were to tell you, when sunbeams stream over yellow underbelly, a honey eater feasting between gilding leaves, I wish I could fly up there to sit for a while away from the pace and chaos of ordinary things. That is where, when I spy the upturned cup of a ghost moon plump in a deep blue pillowed afternoon, I think I must call my mum, though I clasped her hand while she passed such a long time since, as the tide rasped its shallow symphony over our last goodbye. That is where, when I stretch to part and kiss the soft pink cheek of my son, now 12, towering over me, I feel again the wrench as they pulled him from my ruptured belly. That is where, when breath of sea sends me sailing back to this rough hand gentle over mine, my weathered trawler captain father steering me away from jagged territory into calmer waters, still sometimes against my will. That is where, when I smell your neck to fall again over the handrail of our romantic balcony, landing in the toy-scattered couch of our reality, that is where, when I tumble on a crumpled butterfly, ensnared once more by that man-boy man who tore my wings, never mind. I put them back together in time. On dark days, you can still see the scars, but on bright ones, that is where I would tell you, that is where the light shines through the strongest. Well, I'm someone who can't resist poems about light and dark, so that one, <laughs> that one resonates with me. There's so much going on in that poem. Um, I feel like you're navigating between reefs and uncharted waters and senses and reflection and weaving multiple threads into a kind of life tapestry with moments of luminosity. Oh, wow. Did you find that? I know, I know. I'm good. I'm a, I'm a poet too. Did you, find, did you find that it was a balancing act to try and get that poem to work the way that it does? Um, you know, no. I, honestly, it just came out like that and and that's what happens with a lot of my poems uh i think what happens is that i'm always reflecting on things that i feel very strongly about whether they are political or they are personal or you know sometimes they collide in a poem and i you know read one or two later which do that but i think 
what always happens is that I'm unaware of this idea going around and around in my head, just marinating under the surface for quite a while. And so by the time it comes to the surface and wants to come out onto the page, it's ready. You know, it's almost, it's fully formed in a way. But when I start writing, I never know where it's going to go. And with that poem, it just, it took off in its own direction. And I think, you know, I just have to be in that place where I'm willing to accept where the poem wants to take me mm. when it comes to the page. But I, I sort of often feel like, you know, I enter this other space when I'm writing poems. It's almost like on autopilot where it's my subconscious is driving the car, if you like. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. Uh, there's some poems I've written that I don't know how I've written. Yeah. yeah so was that really me who wrote that? Who was yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And, and that poem is really like that in that there's all these strange connections, but for me, they do connect, you know, because the whole thing in that poem is that it's the moments that are the strongest in my life that have made me who I am, you know. The, the hardest moments and the most beautiful, most poignant moments mm. are the things that I feel have really forged me into who I am as a person. Um, it's a really emotive place, isn't it? You, you're, it's like you're wrenching something out from inside mm. in order to bring it to light. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so... The next poem um, I was going to read is uh, strong in a very different way. Um, it, it's, um, it's one of my women's rights poems, which is an area I do like to get into from time to time. Um, and this one recently won first prize in a Canadian competition. Um, it basically, it's a bit left of centre, okay? <laughs> it explores women's rights issues um, as an audio tour transcript. So you've got to imagine you're on this audio tour, well, this tour, it's a cruise, and this is the transcript of the tour guide. Um, and amongst other commentary, and this is where the journalist comes in. Um, so amongst other commentary in this poem, you will find statistics on violence against women um, and, and you know, other issues affecting women um, in the world. Um, and just to note also that there are some redacted parts um, and there are also a couple of footnotes at the end as you would find in any transcript. So um, this one is called Welcome to Your Life Cruises Self-Guided Tour Official Transcript. Please ensure your heads, personal headset is set to channel one at all times. Welcome to your self-guided tour of the state of womanhood. This destination has been pre-selected for you on a randomized basis. You have opted for the no frills version of this tour. Please be aware this means you will incur additional charges en route. We are not responsible for unforeseen costs or for personal losses, damage, injury, or death incurred. Following a brief passage through the Strait of Infanthood, 
noted for its rosy sunrises and its perennial flamingo-tinted flora, we will be approaching our first drop-off point. This is non-optional. Significant additional expenditure applies. Please prepare to disembark for your overnight adventure at the precipice of girlhood. If you have not read our explanatory notes on local customs, here is a quick recap. You do not have an opinion. If you think you have an opinion, it will be summarily refuted. You will accept all forms of affection from random strangers, distant relatives, friends of all ages and persuasions, no matter how creepy or repugnant. You will refrain at all times from being loud, shrill or argumentative. Conduct of this nature is restricted to the moors of Shrew, which destination has been excluded from this tour for reasons relating to current litigation. You are regarded as inferior in all matters related to logic, mathematics, spatial awareness and physical strength. You are encouraged to make significant purchases in the Gateway gift shop. The last tender will depart at 7 a.m. sharp. Please ensure you are on board. The highlight of the next part of your cruise will be your visit to the capital of womanhood. On the left, you will find the Plains of Empathy. Natives of this region are commonly found to be friendly. Caution should be applied further to the left where radical elements are known to inhabit the coastal fringes as well as heavily wooded hinterland areas. Having navigated the sound of education with its 25% chance you have sustained sexual assault, you will now be versed in fending off unwanted physical interactions to a greater or lesser extent while navigating obstacles deliberately placed in your path. We recommend you pause here briefly and take in the distant heights of the Cape of Corporateria. There you can expect two-thirds pay for like or higher value work. Up to 40% of prior participants have experienced sexual harassment in this location. Beware low-slung glass overhead. In the event that you opt for the side trip to the geezer fields of maternity, career parking is available at rear. Please be aware that terms and conditions may change without notice in your absence. A hefty surcharge is applied to all late returns. In the event of your non-return, you may re be required to pay. Sorry, there's some redacted bits. We have just received a tycoon warning. For your own safety, please follow all directions without question. Step out of the vehicle, interlace your hands behind your head, spread your legs and await further instructions. We hope you have enjoyed your journey through the Midlands of the state of womanhood. Please gather up all of your resources as we will shortly arrive at the mines of menopause. No appropriate protective equipment is available at this time. Severe conditions are expected. We urge you to take every precaution as we navigate. 
static voice becomes inaudible. And then the footnotes. Travel advisory, state of womanhood, violent and or fatal assaults have been recorded in the case of one third of tour participants. Sections redacted due to ongoing litigation. So you just read that to a, a privileged white male of a, oh. of a, of a, of a certain age. And, and um, I mean, I've come across a lot of what's in that poem in the course right. of my life, but never quite so boldly put. <laughs> and, and, and there is a sort of sense of discomfort that comes with it for, you know, for any man, I would think. Mm. I was just wondering what kind of feedback, what kind of response you've had to that poem. All the response has been from women. Um, and it's all been for women sort of my age or slightly older, I guess. And it's been like overwhelmingly positive. Um, that poem has been read at the Irish Embassy in Canberra for International Women's Day by um, Gabrielle Carey, who's a wonderful Australian novelist, well-known biographer as well. Um, I was read at a theatre in Ireland by Margaret O'Brien also. Um, she's a wonderful poet, con poetry convener and writer in Ireland. Um, uh, so she read it at Brewery, Brewery Lane Theatre in Ireland for International Women's Day as well. So, I mean, the poem only just came out, a couple, you know, three months ago, earlier this year. Um, so it, it, it did, and on um, Twitter it took off as well. So, so it, was, it, was, it was actually really surprising. I was totally shocked when it won first prize in Canada. Um, in this wonderful journal, um, Into the Void. Um, so, um, yeah, it surprised me because I do think it's, it's very bold, um, but it's all true. That's yes. the thing. It's all true. And like you said, for some people, you know, things may be changing. They haven't changed that much. The underlying statistics in that are all correct, current to date. Mm. So, you know, we may on the face of it feel like we've made a lot of progress and change. There's an awful lot of work still to be done, you know. Um, and, and, you know, as I mentioned to you, women's rights are, are one of my big issues and, you know, Me Too is another aspect of it. So these things do come out in my poetry. And when I said, you know, sex in the title of this um, reading, I, I meant, you know, yes, sex as in love and relationships, but I also meant sex as in gender issues because it's a very powerful undercurrent in, in my work. So there you go. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, obviously, it's, these are things that you feel passionate about. Um, but there is a, there is, in poetry, I think there is a, a line that you have to not cross, and that is to not be becoming across as a crusader. Maybe you do. Maybe 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 you don't have to. Maybe you do have to cross that line. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I was just wondering whether there was any sort of negative pushback to some of the sentiments expressed in that poem. Not not at all, by the sound of it. None that anyone's been brave enough to front to me. <laughs> um, no, not in the slightest. Um, right. But um, overwhelmingly positive. Like, you know, I really was surprised because I, I do think it's cheeky. But to be honest, I, 
I tend to be quite strong in in my poetry, you know, particularly with protest poetry or 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 political poetry. I tend to be quite strong. There's no point in holding back. Let's okay. face it. There are some issues if you feel really strongly about um, and we want change, then I think you have to go for it. And when I do that, I'm definitely employing that that journalist brain and I do go and research stuff mm -hmm. um, and there are other there's another poem later that I had intended to read um, an environment poem um, particularly with the environment poems I tend to go and research and get the facts and I'll stick them in there mm -hmm. because when you're confronted with the facts I actually think it's really powerful and and there's no arguing with it you know yeah. and you know it may seem that I'm stating something really strongly but if it's the truth then uh, really am I, you know i'm just telling you how it is yeah. so if you find that to be stated strongly that means then there's a call to do something yeah um, and and i feel that poetry because of where i came from because in ireland poetry has had that political vein for a very long time Poetry to me has a place in the world as an agitator, as a, a form of resistance, you know, as a call out of the darkness to do something, to make a change, and also as a light of hope. So there are people who will hear the things that I'm saying and they'll go, that's me, that relates to me. So mm -hmm. I think in some ways it tells people you're not alone in the world. If this is happening to you, there's someone else out there shouting about this too. Yeah. And we want to change, that's why we're doing it. But you know, poetry's not always that to me. I do have quiet and well, you know. You shift into that different mode in your next poem. Um, so the next poem is um, very much turning to the lighter side. <laughs> um, Though there may be a slight political moment in there as well. Um, but it's an offbeat love poem and it was published in Cordite a couple of years ago. Um, so here we go. Nothing happens in the burbs. We lay in bed talking about nothing till two came stomping up the stairs, raging on about nothing. One hot on his heels. What did you do to him? Nothing. After breakfast, you put music on. Adele, Luca Bloom, Joe Cocker, Emily Sande. They had nothing in common but us. 11 a.m. on a Saturday, dancing barefoot in the kitchen, pretending there was nothing going on. I lulled between one and two while you did nothing in the garden. Got to help to move it to the garage. Nothing in the fridge, so we cobbled something together. Nothing on TV, so we watched an expert panel arguing vehemently about nothing the government was doing nothing about while we shook our heads knowing nothing would change. Slouching on the couch, nothing between us but the dog, eight feet in the air. A howl and crash from upstairs. What happened? Nothing. In unison, too quick. What was that all about? 
nothing at all. We split a cider, yours straight from the bottle, mine from a champagne flute, making an occasion out of nothing, till we went to bed in no hurry. We had nothing on, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, I would change. You said to me the other day when we were talking about this that that poem's really a nothing poem, but I, I think that's a kind of everything poem. So it's uh -huh. You capture, I mean, this is what poetry does, and any art form does, it creates something out of nothing, doesn't it? <laughs> Very kind, thank <laughs> you. Um, I think that poem for me is about how life is lived in the little moments. And sometimes we're not aware that these are, this is heaven on earth. These are the greatest moments when we think we're doing nothing, you know? So that's what that was about. Yeah, I mean, the poetic eye needs to, needs to find those moments and hold those moments to the light. As, as Indeed. Um, <laughs> you'll never walk alone. Mm. So, so this is um, because I lost people close to me relatively early in life. I think my poetry often strives to cross that invisible boundary between body and soul. Um, so this poem is a haze of memories from my grandmother's kitchen long ago in Ireland. And, you know, it's one of those ones that just came to me in a rush as well, like that, like this just very intense memory. You'll never walk alone. The grandmother ever at my shoulder. What harm another little nub of butter? A pinch of sage would lift the whole thing. Navigating the gaps as nimbly now as she did in her dimly lit kitchen with its three trip up steps to sprinkle and stir her jealous Jack Russell and me always lapping at her feet. My grandfather appearing out of thin air, his fine white hair backlit, a smear of ancient grease across his forehead, cutting through the seasoned haze with its air of industry. My mother and her Irish twin hovering together, inseparable after birth, throughout their lives, between death and life and forever after their baby sister born between them, whose tiny feet never touched the ground for as long as they both had lived. In every sunset, a swell of light to lift you away out of the falling day and carry you through the dark. These ghosts I wear who bear me up. So this, <laughs> this is a poem that I think reflects a strand in your work of um, looking at continuity and connection. Um, not an unusual thing for a poet to do, but I'm just wondering to what extent there's a bit of the archetypal longing of the exile for, for home and the past and that's driving this. Uh, uh, absolutely. You know, um, I reached a very... Um, difficult or strange or um, turning point last year where um, I had spent exactly half my life in Ireland and half my life in Australia. Um, and I think it, 
made me pause. It makes you question who you are really, where are you really from, you know? Um, and the thing is, I know you're listening to me here and you're going, well, she sounds so Irish. She's clearly Irish, you know, but I've spent half my life here in Australia and you know there's no question that has impacted me too you know I love the bush I go walking in the bush every single day it comes out all the time in my poetry um, but people say over and over you know my voice is Irish and I think that it essentially is you know that's where I come from that's where my formative years were spent um, and I have an incredible love of the Irish landscape and the culture and, and where I come from in West Clare in Ireland. And it's a connection I'll never lose. And actually this year marks another strange turning point for me, which is that it's the first year in 25 years that I won't go home to Ireland and see family and put my feet on Irish soil you know um, and it's breaking my heart it's absolutely breaking my heart at the moment that I can't do that so yes the exile is living strongly within me and comes out in my poetry but but you know having said that I wouldn't change a thing I love Australia uh, it's been very good to me I, you know I fell in love here married um, my kids were born here. I have so many beautiful friends here. Um, and, you know, poetry happened while here. Um, and, and being part of the poetry network here in Australia has, you know, been a, a profound gift in my life. It really has an incredible blessing. Um, so, yeah, exile, but happily so. Yeah, and, and, and then the theme in, in the next poem too, I think, between ebb and flow. Yes, yes, definitely. So this next poem harks back to that time I mentioned earlier when my mum was terminally ill and we were living in Sydney um, and I raced home to Ireland with two kids under two. My youngest was six months and um, my other son was just about to turn two and we we didn't know how long mum would have. And as it turned out, she had six months and it was the most awful and precious of times. So um, this poem is from my first poetry collection, Where the Lost Things Go, published by Salmon Poetry in 2017, which is now in its fifth print. Um, so this collection was actually really kicked off, as I said earlier, by that processing of the grief at the loss of my mother. Um, and this, this poem came about, uh, at, it, it's, it's basically about the moment I realized that mom's time had come. Between ebb and flow, mist rolls off moss green hills where wind wild ponies thunder manes flying as they chase their seaward brothers, locked in eternal contest on this deserted grey mile, past the little stone churchyard, long forgotten graves spilling stones onto the sodden bog, a soft snore from behind, my two angels sleeping, 
13,000 miles from all they have ever known, running our own race to make the best of spaces like this. A rainbow rises along the horizon and I recognize her, come from my mother, locked in her own immortal struggle. The sister returned, so I know it won't be long now, and I cry a little at the unbearable beauty of these diastoles when we are all suspended here in a heartbeat between heaven and earth. Now, one of the things I love about your work is how grounded it is in place. And I've never been to Ireland, but um, I get a real sense of its kind of elemental nature in that poem. Oh, thank you. Um, you linked um, three generations of your family in that poem. Uh, that comes actually in a number of poems. I've noticed that that's just happening over and over still, actually. Even some of my new eco poems have that going on. Yeah. Um, and you sort of talk about the time of unbearable beauty. Mm. Um, together with the robust life of thundering wild ponies with the long forgotten <laughs> graves and the little stone churchyards, I mean, really wonderful imagery. Um, it's all, that's straight, that's straight up how it is, I promise you. Sure, that's sure. where I come from. It's yeah. absolutely stunning. You need to go there. <laughs> and poetry is everywhere there too, you know. So. I don't know any poet who's been to Ireland who hasn't come back without writing poems about Ireland. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, singularity is a completely different kind of poem, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I thought I'd put this one in as a kind of a segue into the eco-poetry um, because, you know, this offers a more universal view on, on life and humanity. Um, it was written for Giant Steps Anthology, which was published by Recent Work Press last year um, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Singularity staring back through that magnificent desolation to this deviled blue globe, one dome suspended in light, the other obscured by the shadow of where you stood, immersed as you were in light particles from long dead stars. Did you wonder at our seemingly eternal journey, cycling over and over from light to dark, to light, reflecting on earth, seeing home for the first time in that vast perspective, at once vivid and spectral, this silenced beauty turning slowly over its own desolate truth, the enormity of its one persisting challenge to somehow find our allied humanity a singular planetary alignment, as subtly elusive as one perfect surface reflection, as great and bungled, as necessary as the light we feed on, as desperate to repel the dark over and over, to separate and break us apart from the specter of some alternative reality, time folded in on itself, suspending us in an other 
perpetual virtual truth and the hovering ghosts of what could have been. I, um, I spent 20 years as a lawyer before someone, oh. before someone told me that I was so fixated on the small details that I couldn't see the big picture. And, and I think that's what our lives have become, really. We are all enmeshed in the, the minutiae of life. Yeah. And we need to occasionally, at least occasionally, hand back and, and have a look at the bigger picture. Yeah. It's important that you, you do that. Sure. There you go. I didn't know we had that background in ah, I didn't tell you. Yeah, legal. It's interesting, isn't it, to go from, from something so so wildly detailed and um, precise and prescriptive to something so the opposite in well, poetry. Both do use language, so I suppose there's that. In true, common. true, and precision of language. Yeah. yeah. Uh, would you like to read us another one? Sure, thank you. <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier um, that I'm a former environment journalist and environmental author. But also as a mother, I worry greatly about the future of this one irreplaceable planet. Um, both of these elements collide in this next poem, which was written for the Hope for Whole um, Eco Anthology published by Plumwood Mountain. Um, this anthology was compiled by Anne Elvey as a form of protest against the Adani coal mine in Queensland which would have devastating consequences, not just for Australia's environment, but for the whole planet. Um, this particular poem has since developed a bit of a life of its own. Um, it's been adopted and performed by international climate activists, the Climate Guardians, and it's recently been taken up by Extinction Rebellion. Um, it's appeared in an art exhibition and thanks to Michael Aiken and Gareth Jenkins at the Garden Lounge Creative Space in Sydney, it's also been produced as a limited edition poster. So this is a protest poem in the form of a recipe. Recipe for a giant pickle. Take one shovel. A big, big, big shovel. Dig one hole. A big, big black hole. Extract all carbon in the form of coal, approximately 2.3 billion tons. Reserve for later. Into the big, big, big black hole pour all rights of the Wangan, Jagalingu and Juru indigenous people slowly adding 120 billion litres of groundwater, if available. Futures of Car Carmichael, Thompson, Barku, Diamantina, Flinders, Bulu and Warrigo rivers. Stir well before adding Lake Buchanan, Lake Galilee, Betts Creek and as many sw small aquifers of the Galilee and Great Artesian Basins as you can get your hands on quantities subject to seasonal variation. Slowly slide sand and soil of 75,000 square kilometers of the desert uplands into the big, big, big black hole. Using a sharp-bladed mixer, carefully blend in large quantities and varieties of unique fauna 
particularly black-throated finch, adwallum frogs and sugar gliders for color and sweetness. Now add over 14,000 species of irreplaceable indigenous flora, particularly rare baronia. The rarer, the better. Tip the remaining ingredients in and cover up 23 laws relating to financial rectitude, several large handfuls of environmental protection statutes, $1 billion of Australian taxpayers' money, 69,000 reef tourism jobs. 10,000 jobs should rise out of the mixture to balance acidity. You can now discard the strongly held opinions of 12 million Australians, as well as Australia's international reputation. While you're waiting, take the 2.3 billion tonnes of carbon reserved earlier and slowly simmer one small blue planet. Not very optimistic, is it? Sorry, it's the truth. <laughs> I know, I know. I actually spent a lot of time researching all of those facts, and they're all true. Yeah, and the Adani man is still going. Yes, yes. So we still, we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep trying to, I mean, 12 million Australians don't agree with it. So, yeah. you know. Um, Necessary poetry, isn't it? No, yeah. Poetry. Yeah. And there was another eco poem which I was going to read, um, the one that recently won a prize in Hong Kong, the reversal poem. Should I go ahead? I, I definitely want you because I, one of the things that um, that I've noticed reading out of emptied cups, uh, in particular, um, is that you are willing to play with form and that there's a lot of craft in, in your work. And um, this poem, either way, the fact remains, excites me because of that. So I definitely want to hear, hear you read it. Oh, thank you. That, so it is a reversal poem, which is a complete head wrecker to write. <laughs> Morning people now. <laughs> Have a lot of coffee before you sit down to write a reversal poem. Um, basically, the poem, appears to take this poem takes quite a fatalistic view of the planet's future as you read through it um, but when you get to the bottom of the poem you're instructed to um, read backwards up from the bottom and when you do that the poem magically reverses itself um, so the idea behind the poem was that everything to do with the climate crisis and the future of our planet depends on our attitude. So here we go. Either way, the fact remains. There is no way back. Therefore, we can no longer hold as irrefutable truth that every human heart has sufficient good at its core, that we could muster the collective will necessary to save our precious planet. There's no denying we are capable of taking the measures necessary for our own survival to secure the future for us and the almost 12, 9 million species around us. We could make the right choices, 
the fact remains that Earth cannot repair itself. There is no basis even from advanced satellite findings to show that Earth and all who dwell on her can survive the impacts of human activities. The greatest scientific minds of our time attest that the world's largest living structure, the Great Barrier Reef, is on path to certain destruction. That over 2,000 species from sea level to 2,000 meters deep are destined to perish. We can no longer support the assertion that there is always a way. There's a way to undo the damage we have done. Allowing that we make every effort to counter global excesses, the impact of human activities is irreversible. Although we may think that we can take action to fix this, we cannot deny the inevitability that not one of us can make a difference. Nature cannot heal itself. We can no longer lie to ourselves that this devastation can be reversed. Now I'll read each line from the bottom up. This devastation can be reversed. We can no longer lie to ourselves that nature cannot heal itself, that not one of us can make a difference. We cannot deny the inevitability that we can take action to fix this. Although we may think the impact of human activities is irreversible, allowing that we make every effort to counter global excesses, there is a way to undo the damage we have done. There is always a way. We can no longer support the assertion that over 2,000 species from sea level to 2,000 meters deep are destined to perish. That the world's largest living structure, the Great Barrier Reef, is on path to certain destruction. The greatest scientific minds of our time attest that Earth and all who dwell on her can survive the impacts of human activities. There is no basis, even from advanced satellite findings, to show that Earth cannot repair itself. The fact remains that we could make the right choices to secure the future for us and the almost nine million species around us. We are capable of taking the measures necessary for our own survival. There is no denying that we could muster the collective will necessary to save our precious planet. Every human heart has sufficient good at its core. Therefore, we can no longer hold as irrefutable truth that there is no way back. I'm conscious that we haven't got a lot of time. Um, yep. So um, I just asked you to read that you've got two more poems. I'd love you to read those two poems and then we'll wrap up. Thanks. So um, this next poem, um, All the Beautiful Outcasts, was um, recently published in Westerly magazine. And it's um, touching on an issue of a fragile ecosystem very close to my home. All the Beautiful Outcasts stirring early to become unwitting witness to this illicit marvel in that last gasp of intense green, the wrong shade for the council elite, 
in between thundering freeways and sprawling dwellings, not far from the mystery-shrouded new metro, the unwanted tunnel that will swallow our remaining respite of ragtag, untouched bushland, a stone's throw from the dank shelf, a chink in the cliff where Lawson stretched after sessions at the Crow's Nest Hotel, exchanging spontaneous verse for a drink, is where wonder struck me post-sunrise, a flash of flame-bright fur, a swathe of white, undulating, sun-drenched, too entranced and trancing foxmates, frolicking unconscious of anything but early warmth and each other unmistakable rapture lit by the first fingers of the new day, pressing between late summer's laden branches. Soaring trees classified as weeds, so easily condemned, as easily as these magnificent misplaced creatures, and later tramping past the foxbait warning signs, Grief striking as acutely as horror at the impending loss of them and of this vigorous corridor, alive now with spearing lorikeets, a dive-bombing wattle bird, cheeks flashing red in the dead heat where cicadas catch on, strike up, and in all that bright, beautiful, bewitching tumult, loss suddenly swallows me wholly into silence. All this flourishing exuberance, vibrant as those two dawn-lit outlaws, all this precious pulsing life, as vivid and dauntless, as utterly unsuspecting of their looming fate as you had been. Well, there's the Australian told in that one, isn't it? Yeah. Irish accented Australian poet. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And uh, the next one, actually, the two intertwine very much as well. Um, there's a small intro to this one, which I, I'd like to do if that's okay. Um, basically, um, Ireland's going through a bit of a reckoning on women's rights at the moment. Um, in 2017, the bodies of 800 babies were discovered um, in a septic tank under one of Ireland's now infamous mother and baby homes. Um, these institutions were dotted around Ireland um, and they were where young women were incarcerated for the simple reason that they were unmarried and pregnant. The 2017 discovery turned out to be the tip of the iceberg. Um, it's a horrifying history of illegal adoptions, illicit vaccine trials and unmarked mass graves. Um, the last of those homes closed its doors shockingly, in 1996. There's an ongoing inquiry into them. Um, so this last poem is dedicated to the victims of the mother and baby homes in Ireland. Um, and I was commissioned by the wonderful Michelle Seminara um, at Verity Law magazine to write an article about that whole issue and what was happening in Ireland. Um, so that um, article is available online if anyone is interested in the story. It was republished in the Irish Times also. Um, before I read this last poem, can I just say thank you so much, David, for the invitation to read. It's been really wonderful to chat with you about poetry. Yeah. And huge thanks to Westwards for supporting this noble venture of yours. Um, 
So this last poem also um, is also featured amongst the finalists in several international competitions. And it's the poem from which this um, collection takes its title. All souls. A citrus swirl of myrtle crosses my path as three skulking brush turkeys scatter dramatically into the understory. Crushed sandstone scrapes under flagging sandals, blending with the tick-tick distant and more insistent chitter and chirrup, perpetual trisagion against the far-off clamour of trucks and cars, morphing this second day of November into the roll and thunder of mist-capped surf on distant shores. And there's the sharp salt catch at the back of the pallet. My mother standing, arms thrown out against the Atlantic's roar, embracing the world with a desperate love like Jesus after the delivery of her death sentence and before her crucifixion. Too far away, too long ago, but still the piercing and the gush of water, the salt rub of old wounds crossing time and space. The quick chirp of a message from my father, 11 hours behind, but instantaneously dispatching me to the fiery pits of hell, where starched sisters must surely be burning. Pharaohs in their hooded head coverings, shepherding the little children and their unmarried mothers through famishment into lightless catacombs, saving an anointed few born nameless in Moses' baskets unto the promised land. A kookaburra laughing carries me home through the clearing where the wattles are bursting, their golden crowns dancing against a brooding backdrop and rainbow lorikeets will swoop in later, lifting our hearts out of emptied cups and away with them into the heavens. Um, the, um, the truth is that the only reason I'm doing this reading series is for my own enjoyment, you see. So I get to hear all these poets that I love. So thank you so much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and once this podcast is posted, um, it will include information about where to get Anne's books. Uh, and we'll be back in June, end of June, uh, with the wonderful Andy Jackson. Thank you very much.